This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 28th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we tackle the issue of treating Down syndrome. And David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society at www.aaas.org. Down syndrome is caused by the presence of an extra copy of the 21st chromosome, and it's the most common chromosomal disorder. The disease was first identified in 1866, but its relationship to chromosome number was not discovered until 1959. Now, over 50 years later, researchers are beginning to take a look at potential treatments for the syndrome. I spoke with Emily Underwood about the recent progress. Down syndrome isn't just one thing. It's actually a constellation of different symptoms. And there's the recognizable physical symptoms like sort of a flatter nose and small ears. But you also see a a range of cognitive symptoms. So difficulties with language and with memory and ability to learn. Those are the most recognizable. There's also a lot of health problems that go along with it, congenital heart defects and leukemia, among other things. So for a long time, no one thought about treatments for Down syndrome. Why has that been off the table? Scientists have known for a long time, since the 50s, that Down syndrome is caused by an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. So they've known that for a long time, but it's actually taken decades to figure out what those genes are. The chromosome wasn't even mapped until 2000. So since they mapped the 21st chromosome, scientists have been trying to figure out what the genes are and what problems they cause. And it's complexity piled on complexity. And it happens really early. It all starts within the first moments of cell division as the body begins to develop. But now there are some treatments being tested in labs, some even in clinical trials. Very different approaches, though. Let's start with drug trials. What kinds of medicines are being tried? The development of different mouse models have made a big difference because they can start to look at how the brains of mice with extra copies of the same genes that are tripled in Down syndrome 
what's different about these mice. One really important discovery was that in mouse models of Down syndrome, you have an excess of what they call inhibitory activity in the brain. These are neurotransmitters that block the rate and level at which other neurons fire. So they sort of act as a break on brain activity. And they found that in mouse models of Down syndrome, there's more of this inhibition. So one drug that's currently being tested tries to take that break off by blocking the activity of a neurotransmitter called GABA. And there's another one in the works for some of the more Alzheimer's-like symptoms. That's right. So about 75% of people with Down syndrome develop Alzheimer's disease by the time they reach their 40s. That's probably because they have an extra copy of the APP gene, which produces a product called beta amyloid, which accumulates as plaques outside of neurons and is thought to interfere with how neurons talk to each other. Because there's this overlap between Alzheimer's and Down syndrome, researchers have been testing different drugs that were originally developed for Alzheimer's. One of these, called siloinositol, is being tested currently. The hope is that it will block the formation of these plaques. It also appears to reduce the level of a certain chemical called myoinositol, which is associated with cognitive impairment. Hmm. So you also note a couple of challenges that researchers face when they begin these clinical tests. What are some of the issues that have come up when trying to recruit participants with Down syndrome? One problem is that even though it's one of the most common developmental disorders, it still has a pretty low prevalence, about one in a thousand people. So it's hard just to recruit the number of people needed for these trials, especially since a lot of them have health conditions that exclude them from Mm. the trials themselves. It's also a really new thing to be running drug trials in Down syndrome, and families are coming around to the prospect slowly. Right. Some are pretty leery about it. And there's also the issue of whether or not someone with these cognitive impairments can give consent. Right. So even though many of the people enrolling in these trials are adults, because of their cognitive impairments, they can't really give the kind of informed consent that adults can give. Mm -hmm. So their legal guardians have to agree to the trials, but they also have to assent to the trials. So it's important for people who are enrolling in these trials to agree and to understand what the trials consist of. Researchers are, are trying to find ways to communicate what the trials are about that don't involve 21-page, you know, single-spaced legal documents. For example, one of the trials is using a document that has pictures and is simplified sort of to bullet points, and the clinical trial coordinator goes through that very carefully with prospective participants. Very interesting. Has anyone you talked to said they've seen positive results with these trials? So there was a trial of a drug for Alzheimer's called memantine that appeared to boost the language memory, the verbal memory skills of the people who took the drug. But it was a trial of only about 40 people, which was too small to be conclusive. So they're running a follow-up trial in Brazil and the U.S. So besides looking at drug interventions for adults, some scientists are tackling the root of the syndrome, the presence of a triple chromosome in the embryo at the very beginning of development. What kinds of approaches are they taking? Right. So the brains of people with Down syndrome are tend to be about 20% smaller 
than normal. So that means that from the very earliest moments of cell division, something is going wrong. And researchers have been trying to figure out what that is, if there are critical windows where an intervention might help. One group is looking at the cerebellum in particular, which is involved in motor control and language and possibly some aspects of learning. What they've found in mice, at least, is that from the day after birth, the cerebellum in Down syndrome mice doesn't develop normally. Normally, there's a population of neural stem cells that has to start dividing like crazy, and they don't. They divide more slowly, and ultimately that affects how big the cerebellum is and how it functions. So one group is experimenting with applying a growth factor called sonic hedgehog. It's a very important, powerful growth factor. It gives us our fingers and toes, for example, to these sort of underperforming neural stem cells to see if they can boost their division. And so far, those trials in mice have been promising. After one dose, they actually restored the normal size of the cerebellum and some of the functions. But this growth factor is so powerful that there's really no way at this point to imagine using that as a treatment. In addition to boosting sonic hedgehog, there's also a group looking into gene silencing. How would that work? Yeah. Last summer, a group published an exciting paper which showed that they were able to use a gene called EXIST that normally silences the extra X chromosome in females they were able to use this gene to silence the extra 21st chromosome in stem cells that had been created from people with Down syndrome. Could these types of treatments, when you're dealing with an embryo or a newborn baby, could they actually be put into clinical trials? Yeah, so right now this research is doing much more to help us understand Down syndrome than to treat it. There are a lot of technical and ethical obstacles to using these treatments prenatally. Just imagine how, how do you test this in people? It is a daunting prospect at this point. That next step of actually intervening and giving a treatment is, is pretty far away. Yeah. I mean, some of the technical obstacles, for example, are how do you ensure that exist only silences one of the extra chromosomes. So they're working on that, but they haven't perfected that yet. And that's just one of many big technical issues. So do the researchers that you talk to see any possibilities for actually going to the next level? That's the goal. They're intermediate goals as well. First, they need to use this technology in mice and rodents and animals and work out some of the technical problems and get closer to having an idea if it could be done safely. And do you think that holds true for both the EXIST and for, say, Sonic Hedgehog or other kinds of... Yeah, and they're actually complementary. I know that the researchers are planning to work together to, say, experiment with using Sonic Hedgehog in cells that have the extra chromosome turned off or turned on. So it's a powerful new experimental model to use different drugs in human cells with the extra genes, which is a big advance from the animal models. Emily, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Staff news writer Emily Underwood describes the latest advances in treating Down syndrome in this week's issue. 
Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on camels as a reservoir of MERS. MERS, or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, first appeared on the scene in 2012, infecting about 200 people. But now the thinking is that it may have circulated much longer than that. Let's start with the causative agent for MERS. What do we know about what causes this disease? Well, Sarah, it's caused by a coronavirus. And a coronavirus is actually the same type of virus that's behind SARS. If those of you remember the SARS epidemic from a few years back that killed 700 people. So this is a type of virus that scientists are very concerned about. Mm -hmm. So there's evidence that this coronavirus has been circulating in camels. How long and how far has that been happening? Well, that's what this new study tried to figure out. There had been some suggestion that it's been in camels for a while at least a couple of decades, but it's really hard to do this research. First of all, it's really hard to import these samples from camels into the U.S. There's concerns about foot and mouth disease, which really stymies efforts to bring even samples of foreign livestock into the U.S. Also, just in Saudi Arabia, where a lot of these cases have happened, the research infrastructure there is limited, which makes it really hard to do research there. So for this new study, what a researcher did was he actually assembled a mobile lab that basically had all the things you would need to test DNA, to look at these types of viruses from these samples and shipped it over to Saudi Arabia so that could be used over there. What was he looking for in these samples? Was he looking for the virus? Right. They looked at more than 200 camel samples from different parts of Saudi Arabia. They also looked at camel samples that have been stored, sometimes for decades. One of the oldest samples was from 1992. And what they were looking for is they were looking for evidence that these animals harbored the MERS virus. And that could be the virus itself, or that could be just the animals making an antibody against the virus. How far back in time were they able to show that the camels had been in contact with the virus? Well, they found a lot of evidence that camels, dating even back to 1992, they found evidence of MERS infection or at least a response to the virus in a lot of them. In fact, of 100 camel serum samples dating back to 1992, there was evidence of antibodies against MERS in almost all of them. What's more, when they looked at camel samples from different parts of Saudi Arabia, some more, much more recent samples, they were finding antibodies against MERS in 150 of almost 200 of them, which suggests that they're just seeing a lot of evidence of this virus or at least a response to this virus in most of the camels that they're looking at. So this is a pretty widespread and common-sounding virus, but the disease in humans hasn't been around for that long. Is there any explanation for why it may have been in camels for so long and now it's in people? Well, that's a really interesting thing. If MERS has been around for at least two decades, why haven't we seen human cases of it until a couple of years ago? And one possibility is we just haven't picked up these cases. Another possibility is that the virus has somehow changed over the last couple of decades, that in the past maybe it spread very easily from camel to camel, but something maybe changed recently in it that allowed it to spread to humans. And that's a big concern for scientists because they obviously don't want to see another pandemic like SARS or something even worse. Mm -hmm. So how is this virus transmitted between camels or between camels and people? 
They don't know that, but what they did find is they found a lot of evidence for the virus in the nasal swabs of camels, which suggests that it may be transmitted through the air. The camels are maybe sneezing, and humans are maybe picking it up that way. I know. Is there a risk, like with SARS, that this might become a person-to-person virus? Well, that would be the real big concern because right now, they, what they say is the reservoirs in camels, which basically means the virus can only survive in camels, can be transmitted to humans, but humans really aren't passing the virus from human to human. And they always have to get it from the camels, and if it becomes a virus that can transmit from human to humans, then we've got a much bigger problem on our hands. From the Middle East and camels, we now head to South America and whales. Mass strandings, when large groups of whales beach themselves and die, are a mysterious phenomenon. And now, evidence suggests that they may have been happening much longer than previously thought. So, Dave. Let's go to Chile first.、Uh, what piece of the puzzle was found there? Well, let's go to Chile and let's go back to 2010 and a highway widening project that was taking place near the northwest coast of the country. And what workers there uncovered was this massive trove of fossils, and included in that were the skeletons of at least 30 large baleen whales. And what this new study is trying to figure out is how those whales got there in the first place. The deposits suggest that these animals. Are somewhere between six and nine million years old. Wow! So when they look at these fossils, were they able to tell anything about you know whether or not they were stranded there? Well, that was the first thing they looked at. Some of the interesting things they noticed was that these fossils were intact. And the position of a lot of them was belly up, which suggests that they died at sea. Now, this part of Chile, millions of years ago, actually faced a bay, which explains how the whales got there in the first place. But they noticed a lot of these fossils seem to be on their back, which suggests they died at sea and then washed up on shore. The other thing was that the skeletons were remarkably intact, which suggests that it wasn't traumatic geological events, something like a tsunami, which. Just sort of wash them up all on shore because you would expect a lot more fragmentation of the skeletons. The final interesting piece of the puzzle was that a lot of these skeletons were deposited geologically, at least relatively around the same time. You see a lot of different ages of whales, which suggests that it must have been some sort of traumatic event that cut across the entire population that didn't just target specific individuals.、Mm. So they're all killed at the same time. Is there any cause of death in evidence in these fossils? Well, what the researchers are speculating is that it may be that a lot of these whales ingested toxins produced by harmful algal blooms. What happens is that fish can eat these algae, then whale eat the fish, and then whale get poisoned. That even happens today. But it would sort of put a lot of these puzzle pieces together if it was something like that. And intriguingly, next to some of the fossils, the researchers found small iron-coated spheres, which could be the remains of one of the stages of microorganisms. That could be involved in an algae bloom. Now they're going to have to test that to see if that's actually the case, but it does lend some intriguing support to this hypothesis. So this all started because they were expanding a road and a public works project. Did the road actually get completed? The highway has been completed. This section of the highway and the fossils, luckily, have been moved to. Museum, so they can still be studied.、And、you can actually see kind of a cool video of just sort of the overview of the project and a lot more details about these skeletons on the site. Finally, we have a story on plant-insect communication. Insect pheromones are used between bugs to attract mates or to warn others about a danger. Farmers use these same substances to control pest species, luring them away from crops in various ways. 
What are some of the pros and cons of using pheromones? Well, pheromones are thought to be eco-friendly. You can imagine instead of spraying your crops with pesticides, if you could just use the natural chemicals that bugs produce, it should be more eco-friendly. The problem is, is that these pheromones up to now have to be produced synthetically, and the processes that produce these synthetic pheromones involve neurotoxins, which you can imagine may not be so good for people. So scientists have wanted to find a greener way to protect crops from insects. And so in this study, they actually looked at a way that involved the plants themselves. How did that work? Well, they, yeah, the, the goal was, can we get the plants themselves to produce the pheromones? That way we don't have to go to factories and make them with all these other potentially harmful chemicals. And then you would basically just be able to grow these crops the same way you grow any other crops, although they would have this advantage now of being able to essentially scare insects away. So in this case, they didn't actually put it in a crop plant. They First, they just put it in a tobacco plant? They put it in a tobacco plant. It's an easy plant to work with in the laboratory just to see if they could do it. It's sort of a proof of concept thing. And they were able to get the tobacco plant to produce two different types of pheromones from two different types of moths, one the cherry ermine moth and the orchard ermine moth. And in the wild, these pheromones are emitted by females to attract males. So this is an attracting pheromone, not a repelling pheromone. The way they used it is once they produce these pheromones with a tobacco plant, they put them in traps, which is also used with synthetic pheromones currently. And the idea is when insects sort of descend on a field, they'll gravitate towards those traps and stay off the crops. So how do these plant-derived pheromones compare with a chemically synthesized pheromone? They actually worked pretty well. The plant-derived pheromones trapped an average of about 130 male bugs per trap. That's about half of what synthetic pheromones catch, but still a lot for a proof-of-concept experiment like this. So is the next step to actually introduce these genes into crop plants so that they do the work for themselves? Exactly right. Instead of having these traps, and ideally, obviously, you'd want a pheromone that repels insects rather than attracts them. But if plants could produce this, then, again, you would really obviate the need to create these things synthetically in factories. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about how a male goat essence really turns the females on. Also a story about what scientists are learning from 14th century poop. (laughs) For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a top 10 list for U.S. ocean science. Also a story about how science is being misused in Uganda to justify an anti-gay law there. Finally, for Science Live, this week's chat is about natural gas. Is it an energy solution or a climate threat? And this will be our last Science Live in our weekly Science Live series, which has been going on for about three years now. We'll still do Science Lives from time to time. It will just no longer be a weekly event. And we thank all of our readers and watchers who have followed us for the past few years. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our last regularly scheduled live chat, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, 
Thanks for joining us. to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.